You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. So the line from that uh, sermon intro video says, remember my name. Sometimes I forget who I am. I forget my own name. Father, remember me. We're going to lean into that uh, a little bit uh, today about names and their significance. Our scripture lesson today is we continue power and passion in search of resurrection. We talk about uh, an unlikely character, some uh, person from Jesus' story that we really don't know a whole lot about, and it's Pilate's wife. Scripture lesson today uh, comes from Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter, verse 19. It's on the screens, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. While he, meaning Pilate, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man. For today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So an interesting character uh, this week in uh, uh, Pontius Pilate's wife, who, who goes unnamed. She's simply known as Pilate's wife. And she only appears in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and she comes in as quickly as she leaves uh, with one verse. And talking about dreams, God came to her and offered her a dream about this person of Jesus. Last week, or the week before last, uh, rather, uh, we, we, had a, we took a, my family, uh, took a, a spring break trip down to New Orleans uh, to see family, uh, and we went to the Audubon Zoo one day where Cecilia saved Annalie's life. I'll tell you that story later. If you follow me on Facebook, you've seen that. Uh, we also went and took a tour about LSU, or took a tour uh, around LSU, saw Mike the Tiger, uh, and maybe the highlight of the trip is that Christy and I, got to see Hamilton at the Sanger. You're impressed, I can tell. Well, we were super excited about that, uh, going to see uh, Hamilton. It's an interesting show. I I really didn't know much about Hamilton uh, before uh, the musical, and I started reading the 1,400-page book, but then gave up very quickly after starting uh, to read that biography. I mean, I knew Adam Hamilton. Adam Hamilton. (laughs) Alexander Hamilton. I wonder how many. Did I do that at the early service? Okay, uh, I wonder how many times that's going to slip in there. Alexander Hamilton, uh, I knew he was on the $10 bill, but also knew he wasn't a president. Um, so I didn't know a whole lot about him, because uh, most of our forefathers outside of maybe Benjamin Franklin, John Hancock, most of the folks we pay attention to uh, were those first few presidents. Uh, but Alexander Hamilton did a, a lot. He, he developed, he started the Coast Guard. He started the, the Federal Bank. He defended the Constitution through the Federalist Papers. He had a remarkable career. And as you're watching, I mean, the, the musical really is about, just at the very beginning, of remembering who he is and remembering his name. Like at the very beginning, um, a hurricane came, devastation reigned, a man saw his future drip, dripping down the drain, put a pencil to his temple, connected it to his brain, wrote his first refrain, a testament to his pain, and word got around, said, this kid is insane, man, took up a collection just to send him to the mainland, get an education, don't forget from whence you came, and the world's going to know your name, what's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. 
My name is Alexander Hamilton. It's all about who he is. And remembering his, I knew at some point I was going to be able to rap. And it took like almost three years to get there. But I'm really excited about that. It's about who he is and, and, and what he did. And like, don't forget. Don't forget him. But as we go through the musical, you begin to realize that maybe Alexander wasn't the hero of the story. Because you hear much about his wife, Eliza. When you talk about being forgotten in history, Eliza certainly was. We know a lot about Pilate, Pontius Pilate. We don't know a whole lot about Pontius Pilate's wife. She kind of jumps into the story, and just as quickly as she does, she jumps out of it. Scripture doesn't even remember her name. Sometimes Scripture does this. I'd love to say that Scripture tells us everything we want to know, but it doesn't. And particularly in Matthew's gospel, this happens several times. Pilate's wife, the wise men, uh, and uh, the centurion who's at the foot of the cross. So the wise men were there at Jesus' birth, and the centurion, whoever the centurion was, was there at Jesus' death. And he's the one that recognized that Jesus was the son of God. When, when scripture offers uh, blanks or places that we have to fill in the gap, uh, there's a couple of ways that we look at that and we deal with that. Uh, one is called a hermeneutic, which is just a fancy way of saying an interpretive lens. Uh, a hermeneutic of charity. A hermeneutic of charity is a way in which of being charitable with scripture. Uh, sometimes you know, Jesus doesn't comment on everything. So sometimes we treat that with great charity because of some assumptions we have to make theologically. Uh, like, for example, Scripture ne- never says what Jesus looked like. I mean, we know he had a robe because he uh, removed his outer garment uh, when he sat with the disciples at the foot washing in the Gospel of John. We assume he wore sandals because uh, his feet were washed. Uh, but it doesn't say much about who or, or what he looked like. It, uh, scripture goes to great lengths to talk about John the Baptist and what he looks like because he was crazy. You know, he wore uh, uh, camel skin and ate locusts and uh, they go to great lengths to point out what he looked like, but not so with Jesus. So, with a hermeneutic of charity, we assume Jesus looked like other first century rabbis uh, who were poor, since scripture doesn't mention anything about it. Another example is with infant baptism. In the United Methodist Church, we baptize infants. And Jesus never said to baptize infants or not to baptize infants. So with a hermeneutic of charity, with stories such as when Cornelius was baptized in the book of Acts, it says his entire household was baptized. So we make a theological assumption that infant baptism is a symbol of God's grace as well. That's called a hermeneutic of charity. Um, or, you know, sometimes scripture doesn't mention it because it just doesn't need to be mentioned. Like, for example, I don't have to tell you what Asbury's address is because you're already here, and that would be superfluous, right? Hermeneutic of charity. That's one way to fill in the blanks uh, when we find them in scripture. Another way is called a hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic of suspicion. Much like a hermeneutic of, of charity... Uh, makes assumptions about what Scripture says and doesn't say, uh, assuming that it didn't really need to be said because it was just understood, a hermeneutic of suspicion assumes that it's not said on purpose in Scripture. For example, the relationship between Peter and Paul is an exercise of a hermeneutic of suspicion. 
uh, Paul, in Paul's own word, Peter and Paul did not get along. Paul, in Paul's own words in Galatians, he says, I stood and I opposed Peter to his face because he was a hypocrite and he did not eat with Gentiles when people from Jerusalem came up. Now, the book of Acts remembers their relationship a little bit different. It's posited much more positively where Peter leans more into the Gentile mission and seeing that as being favorable. And Paul leans into a law-centric gospel a little more positively. So a hermeneutic of suspicion invites us to ask difficult questions. Why is there such a disagreement between Acts and Galatians? And one of the reasons why is the book of Acts uh, was circulated in part to turn down the tension between these two factions of understanding Christianity, Peter and Paul. So the book of Acts is, is a means of turning down the tension between the two. A hermeneutic, a hermeneutic I'm just going to say suspicion. I'm, that word is hard to say. An interpretation of suspicion is very helpful in today's text. In terms of asking why Pilate's wife is never named, why is it that Matthew does not remember her name. What is Matthew getting at? There are others in Matthew's gospel who are not named. Uh, As I said, the wise men, in particular the wise men who are at Jesus' birth and the centurion at Jesus' death. Matthew tends to not remember the names of Gentiles. And it's not because they're not important. It's actually uh, quite the opposite. It was the wise men who worshipped the child Jesus when the ruling religious class wanted him dead. And when Jesus was killed, it was the centurion who recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, not the Pharisees. Matthew is making a scandalous point. Sometimes those we treat as if they're unimportant, for example, not remembering their name, are often the ones who see God's story most clearly. It's a reminder to go back into the history books and see whose voice has been forgotten, who has not been lifted up. And it's, again, it's, like, it's kind of like the musical Hamilton. Once you, once you move through that, you begin to realize who the real story, or who, who the real hero of the story is. Remembering those who are voiceless and nameless. It's like the first time uh, I was in fifth grade. Our big fifth grade trip in elementary school was to Washington, D.C., And I remember going to the the tomb of the unknown soldier and being fascinated with it. Seeing how it's guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, rain or shine. And it's a means of remembering those whose names have not been remembered. Remembering those who are voiceless. Just because their names have not been remembered in history, or at least our version of it, does not mean that they are unimportant that the sacrifice did not matter. So the first reason why uh, Mrs. Pilate's name is, is not there is that it works within the theme of the Gospel of Matthew of outsiders recognizing the story of God. Wise men who worship Jesus, Pilate's wife who is there saying, don't have anything to do with this man, and the centurion, the Gentile, who recognized while the religious elite couldn't or wouldn't, Recognize Jesus as the Son of God. These three nameless outsiders recognizing God's story. The second reason Mrs. Pilate enters into the story uh, is not because she's nameless, but it's because of what she says. She says, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. 
Her entrance into the story is kind of is a dramatic breath. This story has been going at a breakneck speed, and then all of a sudden there's this pause where a character we've not heard of yet comes and offers a warning because of a dream specifically, a dream that she has received. This makes the connection uh, even deeper between Pilate and the wise men. The wise men received a dream not to go back to the palace so they might escape Herod's jealousy. And here, Pilate's wife receives a dream of warning to intercede. Both the wise men and Pilate were sitting uh, by the side of those who were powerful. They were both warmed in a dream about what the powerful were capable of doing. And hearing a warning from a dream also brings to mind two other characters from the Old Testament. It reminds us of Joseph, uh, from the uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but more specifically Genesis. Uh, he had lots of dreams, uh, dreams about feast or famine, dreams about stars bowing uh, to a great star. And these dreams got him in trouble, got him thrown into a pit, and then thrown into slavery, and then thrown into jail in Egypt. But we also have the character of Daniel, who had dreams. He had a dream of, of four beasts that represented the four kings of, of the world, those who sat in power. And this dream got him thrown into the lion's den with Nebuchadnezzar. These characters are having dreams. See, God seems to communicate when we least expect it, which would be while we're sleeping. <laughs> and these dreams come to these two characters, Joseph and Daniel, also as a reminder of who Jesus is. Jesus is thrown into the pit, so to speak, placed on the cross. But much like Joseph, there is no evil, there is no pit too deep. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And Joseph is a symbol of that as well. He forgave his brothers and became the, the second most powerful person in Egypt and saved his people. Same thing with Daniel. Daniel was taken out of the lion's pit and is also a hero of the faith of the Jewish people. So in a way, these two characters experienced death and also rose again. Sam Wells, who wrote Power and Passion, uh, the book on which our series is based, he said this, Joseph and Daniel understand the power of dreams. Dreams in the Bible are an inbreaking. they're an inbreaking of God's future into an unpromised circumstance of the present. They unsettle the proud. Pharaoh in Joseph's story, or Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's story, and also Pilate in Matthew's story. When Pilate's wife speaks up, he immediately washes his hands. They vindicate God's chosen, Abraham, Jacob, Jesus. They involve Gentiles in the discovery of God's strange and relentless providence. Yet these dreams do not coerce, destroy, or manipulate. They simply draw back the veil between heaven and earth, disclosing the purpose of God and the mysterious ways God's purpose takes shape in the lives of God's people. What an interesting and fascinating way of looking at dreams in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I wonder, I've started thinking about that, what if, in a way, church was the grand dream of God. The definition of dream, I think, also applies to the church. 
The church is an inbreaking of God's future. It unsettles the proud. It vindicates God's chosen. It involves outsiders in the discovery of God's strange and mysterious providence. It unveils the link between heaven and earth and discloses the purpose of God. If we simply skip over, because this verse from, from Pilate, uh, Pilate's wife in, in the Gospel of Matthew is really easy to skip over. It happens very quickly. Uh, you don't see it in Jesus Christ Superstar. You don't, you know, it's, uh, it, we jump right over it. But if we miss the unnamed, if we skip over those who the story doesn't think it is important, if we are blind, it's kind of like um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I'm in the sanctuary six days a week, five days a week, seven days a week, depending, um, and I noticed one day the banners had changed to Lenten banners. Did you notice that? We have the crown of thorns on one side and the palm for Palm Sunday on the other side. Um, and it took weeks. And finally I asked Angela, I said, what, who, who did that? She goes, well, I did. Because uh, I keep seeing the sanctuary every day. I had, not not- I had become blind to that. Notice them when, when, you, when you leave the sanctuary today. Maybe, maybe you missed them as well. What do we miss when we skip over the nameless? What do we not see in God's story when we treat the seemingly unimportant as not mattering in God's story. If we simply skipped over the unnamed people that history has not remembered, we just might miss God's story. This inbreaking of the kingdom. This power that humbles the proud. This discovery of this strange and mysterious providence and the disclosing of God's purpose. During the season of Lent, may we have eyes to see the Pilate's wives of the world, the unnamed wise men, the centurion at the cross, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the woman who cleaned Jesus' feet, all of these unnamed disciples of Jesus. May we have eyes to see. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and most loving God, help us to follow in your will. Help us too to be at the foot of the cross, to proclaim the same confession as the centurion, saying, surely this is the Son of God. Help us to walk with those who society thinks are unnamed and unimportant. Help us to offer mercy, justice, and also grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.